Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In our previous lesson, we saw how Jesus prayed for himself to glorify God the Father as he approached his death. He also prayed for his followers to be united and to be protected from the devil as they continued to live in a world that was hostile to the good news of Jesus Christ. And now today, as we pick up in John chapter 17, verse 20, we're going to see how Jesus went on to pray for us and how he prayed for all those who would believe in the disciples' message of salvation through him. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus prayed for our unity, that we would not only be united with one another, but that we would also truly be united with God. He also prayed for his glory to be seen in us, so that because of our witness, because of our unity, God's love would be made known to the world. He goes on, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So Jesus wants all of us who belong to him to be with him where he is. He wants us to know his glory. And then he concludes in verse 25, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Intimate knowledge of God, relationship with the Father, is now possible because of Jesus Christ. And even though we're in the world, we are not of it. God's love will be in us, even as Christ is in us, and that will surely change the way that we interact with those around us. John tells us in chapter 18, verse 1, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and cried, the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. To the east of Jerusalem was the Kidron Valley, with the Mount of Olives just beyond it, in the same direction. Jesus and his disciples left the city to walk 
to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. And it's within a Sabbath journey distance from the temple. Jews were only permitted to journey a mile on the Sabbath. And so Jesus would often stay in this garden when visiting the city on a Sabbath or on a special holy day. There's a lot of symbolism here, though, because the name Kidron actually means dark or gloomy. And as Jesus crosses the valley, the darkness seems to intensify because every step he takes brings him closer to the cross. Now, I want you to notice something here. Jesus is going into a garden. And back in the beginning, Adam, the first man, disobeyed God in a garden. And that disobedience led to sin and death. But as Jesus Christ, who scripture refers to as the second Adam, as he also enters a garden, it is in that garden that he will choose to obey God. And because of his obedience, righteousness and life is now going to be made truly possible. Jesus stepped into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, but remember John is only emphasizing certain things. If you read Matthew's account in Matthew 26, you'll find that while Jesus prayed, his disciples all fell asleep. Luke, in his account, tells us in Luke 22, verses 41 to 43, that Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, in scripture, suffering is often referred to as a cup that is to be drunk. Jesus, knowing that the cup of suffering, isolation and death awaited him, he felt real anguish and yet he chose to submit to the Father's will. In spite of everything, he obeyed, saying, Father, yet not my will, but yours be done. It's important to understand that Luke who was a doctor, actually gives us a remarkable detail concerning Christ's distress in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. He tells us that being in anguish, he, Jesus, prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. What Dr. Luke is describing here is very possibly a medical condition known as hematidrosis, in which a person is able to sweat blood. Now, it's it only happens under conditions of extreme emotional distress, but tiny blood vessels in the sweat glands can break, thereby mixing blood with the sweat. So this proves his deep anguish. In the Garden of Eden, because of Adam's disobedience, sin and death entered the world. However, in this garden, Gethsemane, through even though in extreme distress, Christ obeyed the Father. And because of that, righteousness and life are now available to all who commit themselves to him. Let's return to John chapter 18, verse 2. For Judas Iscariot now arrives. 
Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? It's very important to notice here that as Judas arrives with the Roman soldiers and the temple guards who've been sent by the Sanhedrin, according to verse 4, Jesus knows what is going to happen to him, and yet he goes out to meet them. Now, By that, we see that no matter what lies ahead, Jesus is willing to do the Father's will. So why would that be so important? Well, remember that Jesus has been referred to as being the Lamb of God. The temple sacrifices of the Old Testament were really a picture of what the Messiah would come to do. They were an illustration of the ultimate sacrifice God would one day provide. The sacrificial lambs, though, they not only had to be perfect, they also could not struggle. Because struggling would have disqualified the lamb as being a suitable sacrifice. A lamb had to be willing. Its willingness was as important as its perfection. Scripture tells us that Jesus was perfect with no fault of his own. And not only that, he did not struggle against the will of the Father. So he asks them who they're looking for. Verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, it may seem very strange to us that they would fall to the ground at this, but it is rather revealing because repeatedly in the Old Testament, when people came into direct contact with the presence of God, they were unable to stand. These soldiers are looking for a man named Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus now has an unprecedented power about him. When Jesus says, I am he, the Jews would have seen this as being another claim to be God himself because he uses the words in Greek, ego emi, which is the exact same name that God used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to identify himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Although John does not tell us, we know from other gospel accounts that Judas actually betrayed Jesus with a kiss, using it to confirm that Jesus was indeed the one that the soldiers were supposed to arrest. Verse 7, again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he'd spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So Jesus was willing to go with them, but seeking to protect his followers, he commands that they be allowed to go on their way. 
Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You see how willing he is. Jesus knows what's about to happen, but he knows it's coming through the Father's hand and he's willing to do God's will. Dear Peter, you know, he was so often quick to assume that Jesus needed his help. What Peter did that night, though, reminds me so much of me, because there have been times when I too have leapt to the Lord's defense, and in a sense, I have cut off someone's ear with my tongue, and my harsh, unhelpful words have caused unnecessary pain. The good news for me, and probably you as well, is that Jesus is still in the business of putting ears back on, just as he did with Malchus, if we are ask him to. Now, we're not specifically told of that healing here, but not surprisingly, it's Dr. Luke who tells us that Jesus healed the man, and he covers that in Luke 22, verse 51. John has other things he wants to emphasize. What is important here, though, is that not only did Jesus show grace to Malchus by healing him, but he also showed grace to Peter. Because if Jesus had not healed the man, Peter would have very likely been arrested also. Verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Well, we see in verse 12 that immediately upon his arrest, Jesus was taken to Annas, whom John tells us was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, according to God's law, once a man was designated high priest, he was to remain in that office until his death. Annas had actually been the high priest of Israel from AD 6, but after he'd been in office for approximately nine years, the Romans, fearing the authority that he exercised over the Jewish people, had him removed from the position in AD 15. They replaced Annas with his son-in-law Caiaphas. However, the Jewish people still honored Annas, and so, of course, Jesus was taken taken first to him. Of course, any decision that Annas made would have to be approved by Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, according to Rome. Caiaphas, you'll remember, was the one who, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, proposed Jesus had to die. Verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. 
So Peter had not abandoned Christ like the other disciples. He was still following after Jesus, perhaps to try and help him escape, I think. At that point, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Now, some have thought that that other disciple might be John, but I'm very hesitant about that because, you see, John always referred to himself as being the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's not the description that's given here. Also, John was a fisherman, so it's very hard to believe that he would have been known to the high priest. Whoever this is not only was known to Annas, but he also had enough authority to command the high priest's servant girl to let Peter be admitted also. So who is this other disciple? Well, I think it's very likely Joseph of Arimathea, or Nicodemus, because if you think about it, both of them had considerable authority as they were members of the Sanhedrin. Both of them would have also been known to the high priest, and yet both of them had become secret followers of Christ. Well, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is what happens next. Verse 17, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Now, I'm sure that Peter's intentions were good. He hoped to help Jesus, but by operating in his own strength, Peter ended up in a place that he was not supposed to be, and it led him to failing Jesus. This was Peter's first denial here at the fire, and yet I'm sure it passed by unnoticed by him. Now, before we look more at what happened that night in the trial before Annas, let me just say here that Jesus would eventually have two different trials, one before the Jews and one before the Romans. And each of those different trials did have three stages in them. Now, in his Jewish trial, Jesus was first taken to Annas, the actual high priest, who, along with some members of the Sanhedrin, would seek to accuse Christ of being an enemy of the state. Now, you see, their job was to try and find a charge against him that would interest the Romans. After that, Although it's not emphasized by John, we know from the other gospel writers that once Annas was finished with him, Jesus was then sent to Caiaphas, the Roman appointed high priest, where Jesus would be found guilty of blasphemy. Now, both of the trials before Annas and Caiaphas took place that night. And interestingly, according to Jewish law, that made them illegal. You see, cases in which the punishment would be death were not allowed to be tried at night. God's law did not permit the Sanhedrin to meet at night for such matters. But that was not the only law they broke. For example, witnesses were to be called first, but none were called against Christ at Annas' house. It was only much later that false witnesses were produced, but even then their testimony did not agree. 
Trials also had to be conducted in the temple courts, not at a priest's home. And according to the law, once evidence was heard, the members of the Sanhedrin had to take two days to deliberate before casting their vote. A person could not be condemned on the same day as their trial, but a vote was never taken at Jesus' trial. Again and again they broke their governing laws until finally, as the third part of Jesus' trial before the Jews, the Sanhedrin was convened at dawn to give the appearance of following the law. In reality, they only wanted to end their Jesus problem as quickly and efficiently as possible. Now, once Jesus had been taken before Annas, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, he then had to be taken to the Romans for a trial also. And that trial also had three phases because first he went to Pilate. When Pilate realized that Jesus was from Galilee, he sent him to Herod who ruled over that region, simply because Pilate didn't want to be responsible for what happened to Jesus. But Herod, if you remember, didn't want to be responsible either and so he returned Jesus to Pilate for the third and final part of the Roman trial. So then with that as our background, Let's go on and see Jesus questioned by the high priest Annas in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus had said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what was wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. You see how this makes so much more sense now that you know how Annas and Caiaphas both came to be high priest at the same time? Of course, Annas knew Jesus' doctrine. He knew of his disciples also. All he was trying to do was to find something anything that would be worthy of the death penalty. And for that to happen, they needed to find charges that would interest the Romans. And Annas also knew that not only would he have to go to Caiaphas for the decision to be approved, he would also have to go to Pilate as well, because the Jewish leaders did not have the authority to execute the people. Pilate would have to be the one to order Christ's crucifixion, and so they had to find something to accuse him of that would offend the Romans. Having already denied Jesus once, how is Peter doing? Look at verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Oh, 
How do you think Peter must have felt when the rooster began to crow? And suddenly the full weight of what he had done overwhelmed him. We're told elsewhere that Peter went out and wept bitterly. But there's also something very encouraging about all of this that we must not miss. When Peter had so impulsively told Jesus that he would go with Christ to prison and even to death, Luke tells us something very touching that John does not. In Luke 22 verses 31 to 34, speaking about the interaction between Jesus and Peter, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Satan had asked to sift out Peter, but Christ himself had prayed for him that even after the denial, Peter's faith should not fail. Jesus prayed that Peter would turn back to him in repentance and that the experience would then be used in Peter's life to make him a more effective minister for Christ. So did you see there that Jesus wants our faith to survive the enemy's attacks? All of us fail the Lord at some point in our walk with him. But even failure can be put to good use in God's hand. If only we will turn back to him in repentance. God can use our failure to humble us and to make us seem more approachable to others. Through it, we learn compassion for those who struggle. If we're willing to learn from our failure, we'll be more dependent on the Lord because of it. And if we're willing to be open about it, God can use the experience to make us into the ministers that he desires. Believe me, what happened to Peter made him more effective for God's kingdom because it made him realize that he couldn't rely on himself. Failure also gave Peter a testimony of grace once Christ forgave and reinstated him, and it can be the same for us. Now, John doesn't mention much about what happened at Caiaphas's house, nor does he mention the hurried meeting of the Sanhedrin at dawn. To find out more about the events of that night, we will have to turn to Matthew and Luke's Gospels, and that's where we're going to pick up in our next time together. You won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that through what happened to Simon Peter, we just see how the whole episode was used to transform him. It strikes me as being profound that Jesus would speak to him as Simon when he spoke to him about praying that his faith would not fail, but that Peter eventually became the man he was, Peter, the rock the one who would share the gospel with others. Lord, thank you so much that you...
pray for us too, that our faith would not fail, that you desire us to turn back to you after times of hardship, difficulty, and failure. And you will use those things as testimony so that we might minister effectively to others. Lord, thank you that nothing is wasted in your hand. Thank you that you use all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.